Welcome to Weekly Wisdom from Jubilee Circle. We teach the common wisdom of love and unity that is found in all mainstream religions, metaphysical teachings, mysticism, and inspired secular and religious writers and teachers throughout the ages. Our goal is to help you connect with your higher divine self and transform from the inside out so you can become a force for love and transformation in the world. Each week, we bring you wisdom from our founding spiritual director, Reverend Candace Shalou, and other guest speakers. We hope you enjoy this week's words of wisdom. In one of my favorite scenes from Xena Warrior Princess, I know, I'm dating myself, back in the 90s, Xena is counseling her gentle and often naive sidekick, Gabrielle, about the art of defending yourself. Throughout the first few episodes, Xena tries her best to protect Gabrielle from having to learn how to fight and how to defend herself. And eventually, Gabrielle becomes quite proficient with a staff, she, but she only ever uses it in defense if she is attacked. She's never using it to go out and attack other people. So in this scene, Gabrielle tells Xena she doesn't want to learn how to kill. She just wants to learn how to survive. And so then Xena spells out the rules for survival. So these are Xena's rules to survive. Number one, if you can run, run. Number two, if you can't run, surrender, then run. Number three, if you're outnumbered, let them fight each other while you run. Number four, and Gabrielle interrupts and says, wait, more running? <laughs> no, Xena says, four is where you talk your way out of it. It's wisdom before weapons, Gabrielle. The moment you pick up a weapon, Zena says, you become a target. And Zena's advice is solid. It's always wisdom before weapons. And if we want to not be a target, we must also have the wisdom to not even pick up the weapon in the first place. Defenselessness is where our safety lies. Because when we can move through life with love as our guide instead of fear, we never become a target in the first place. And I know it sounds kind of ridiculous to preach nonviolence in such a violent world, but I truly believe, I truly, truly believe that love can overcome fear. That we cannot just talk ourselves out of a violent world, but we can love ourselves out of it. If we will use our wisdom before weapons. And when enough of us learn this way of being in the world, then the whole world gets to say, oh, oh yeah. yeah. From the Christian scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 to 16, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. From A Course in Miracles, lesson 170. Today we learn a lesson which can save you more delay and needless misery than you can possibly imagine. It is this. You make what you defend against, and by your own defense against it, is it real and inescapable. Lay down your arms, and only then do you perceive it false. It seems to be the enemy without that you attack, yet your defense sets up an enemy within, an alien thought at war with you, depriving you of peace, splitting your mind into two camps which seem wholly irreconcilable. For love now has an enemy, an opposite, 
and fear the alien now needs your defense against the threat of what you really are. And from Buddhist nun and teacher Pema Chodron, settling the score in the Buddhist sense is letting the buck stop here because the pain you are feeling allows you to pay back some karmic debt. For what? You don't know and it doesn't really matter. All you need to know is that the future is wide open and you are about to create it by what you do. You are either going to create more debt or get out of debt. You could start to pay off the cosmic credit card. Once upon a time, which seems like many lifetimes ago, I was a professional arguer. I say professional because I went to seminary and got a degree in arguing. Well, in the Christian world, it's called apologetics. <laughs> and my master's degree in religious studies trained me to be what is called an apologist. That is someone who, according to the dictionary, speaks or writes in defense of someone or something that is typically controversial, unpopular, or subject to criticism. There is a long history of apologetics within Christianity in which defenders of the faith would take on critics of doctrines and dogmas. I was an apologist for people like myself, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender community who were trying to reconcile their sexuality and their gender identity with their Christian belief or spirituality. I got really, really good at defending the particular position that you could be LGBTQ and still be a Christian. I founded an internet magazine back in 1996 when the internet was run by a hamster on a wheel. <laughs> and you could get from one end to the other in like a day. You know, we'll be like, sorry, you've reached the end of the internet. <laughs> but the magazine was called Whosoever because John 3.16 says, whosoever believes, there's no ifs, ands, or buts after that. And uh, in the magazine, it was bi-monthly, and it, was, it offered regular apologetics. I developed an entire workshop on how to spiritually defend yourself, which blossomed into a full-blown book. It's back there on the shelf uh, called Bulletproof Faith that was published 15 years ago this year. September will be the 15th anniversary of that book. I'm working on an audio book. Yes. I was not in any way, shape, or form an amateur apologist. I got professional about this. I spent a lot of time on Yahoo message boards back in the day. I would argue relentlessly with the people who challenged the notion that one could square their so-called deviant sexuality with the so-called purity of Christianity. <laughs> I prided myself on making those arguments and defending my position and giving as good as I got, and I really reveled, I really reveled in those gotcha moments, you know? when the accusers or the attackers had nothing left to say because I had torn down their argument just brick by brick by brick by brick. There was nothing left. And I can't tell you how good it felt to defend the faith in those moments, to know that I was right and they were wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> wrong. Did I say wrong? Wrong. Honestly, though, when I look back on those years, I realize <laughs> it was exhausting. I mean, I was constantly in a defensive position. You know, I'm walking around ready for a fight, you know, just, angry lesbian? right, angry lesbian, angry dyke coming through. 
Say one thing. Come on. I dare you. I dare you. I swear that's how I was. Yeah, I'm ready. Just a whiff of disagreement. I got the argument. For all the adrenaline rush of defending my position and feeling right about it, there was really very little joy in it. You know, there was a part of me that felt like I was doing a service to those who witnessed me defending the faith against the critics and the attackers. You know, and maybe the audience did learn a little bit from those exchanges. But being constantly vigilant for any sign of an impending attack, that takes a lot of energy without a lot of payoff. I mean, I wasn't actually changing the minds of the people I was arguing with. In fact, I was just solidifying their feelings of them being right, of me being wrong. I was just making us all feel more separated, creating harder walls between us and them. Here's the kicker, though, and the reason I quit my career as an apologist because I was constantly arguing for one simple reason, my own homophobia. Think about it. If you, you, you don't argue about the things that are already settled in your heart and mind. I don't argue with people who believe the earth is flat. <laughs> Where's the argument? Okay, whatever. I, I don't argue with conspiracy theorists. Okay. It's all settled for me. I, I got it. The truth is the truth that needs no defense. You only argue over the things that still trigger you. You only argue and defend where you fear you're wrong. Or, as A Course in Miracles says in lesson, workbook lesson 170, you make what you defend against. And by your own defense against it, it is real and inescapable. You make up everything you're defending against. Lay down your arms, it says, and only then do you perceive it as false. And this is the, the miracle that I experienced after years and years of making my own internalized homophobia real, like it was actually a thing, and then defending it with every breath in every moment of my life, I realized homophobia isn't real. It's an illusion. I made it up. And in making it up, I had to defend against it. And oh, you may say, homophobia is real. Look out in the world. It's alive and well. LGBTQ people are being attacked and killed every day. And yes, it's true. In this bodily world, there are still people who have made homophobia real, and they defend for it or against it. And this, though, is what keeps it alive. Our belief that we should be afraid of anyone or anything because of how they feel about their own or another person's sexuality or gender identity. When I finally confronted my own fear that something within me could be, as the Catholic Church says, intrinsically disordered or sinful, I realized I made homophobia my cruel God, as a course puts it. But it has no power except the power that I Give it. Jubilance, anything you fear, anything you fear has no power except what you give it. Because you make it up. Once I realized that something within me, namely my sexual orientation, was nothing to fear and was indeed a gift given to me by God as part of my curriculum here to help me remember who I truly am, I finally felt the joy 
I had been missing this whole time. But what's interesting is this. Once I settled the argument in my own heart and mind about my sexual orientation, my inner world shifted. There was a lot of joy there. But my outer world changed too. I discovered that the moment I stopped being a professional apologist, all of my attackers and accusers disappeared. Looking out going, where, where are they? Well, I'm not hanging out in their room anymore, you know? I don't feel the need to go and argue and defend. Instead, my world began to be filled with others who were assured of their own innocence, their own original blessing and holiness. I was surrounded by joy. My homophobic ego dissolved. It returned to the nothingness from which it came. Whatever we defend against in this world, jubilance, that becomes our reality. Whatever I fear the most is whatever I see before me, as the song says. Because we've conjured up things to fear. It's become our reality. That's why a course says, in defenselessness my safety lies. Once I stopped defending my homophobia, I found true safety. Because I realized that trying to reconcile my internalized homophobia and my spirituality was an impossible task because both of them and their alleged irreconcilability was completely invented by my ego. Because it wanted to keep me wrapped up in a world of argument and defense so I would not realize the truth about myself and the truth about my attackers. That we are all one in the mind of God. We are all joined together in eternal unity and love and peace and joy. And once I realized this, there were no more arguments. Now, those folks that I would have immediately argued with, they can say whatever they want about homosexuality or gender identity. Instead of being riled by anger, it fills me with compassion. Why? Because now I recognize that their arguments against LGBTQ people for what they truly are, it is a call for love from them. They are calling for love from me. And there is something about those of us who express our love differently than the world's heterosexual norm. It frightens them. Whatever they fear the most is these people they've invented, these horrible gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender people that they've invented, not gotten to know or try to understand just this idea of them. Their minds are split. They're at war inside and they've deprived themselves of peace. They've made heteronormativity their cruel God who directs them to lash out violently against anyone who disagrees. They believe in a God that will send people to some eternal hell for engaging in that sin. The God they have made, though, is just as powerless as my homophobic God. But until they can experience the light of God's love shining away that darkness, they remain in that fear. I have arrived at a place of gratitude for everyone who challenged and argued with me over those years because now I see they were helping me. They were answering my call for love. 
They were showing me the way out of my own fear. And their arguments, they were a gift to me, part of the curriculum I came here to learn. They moved me toward this place of defenselessness. So now I can be a help to them by becoming an extension of God's love to them instead of being someone they feel they have to defend themselves against. I mean, you see the cycle, the circle. Somebody's got to break it. But this is what happens when egos are on the line. We see each other as our attackers and we feel justified in defending ourselves and attacking back. One of us has to break the chain. It's up to those of us who are determined to see through the ego's lies, as A Course in Miracles instructs in chapter nine, to perceive the sanity of those around us, no matter how insane we may judge their actions. And so how do we do that? Well. When I wrote that book, Bulletproof Faith, some 15 years ago, there was a Bible verse that I used as a guide. And y'all, 15 years ago, I had never heard of A Course in Miracles. But now as I'm looking back and going forward, I was preaching this stuff 15 years ago, and I just didn't, I didn't know. Truth is truth, man. It's everywhere. And this, this is just, this, everything turns on this First Peter scripture. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Always be ready. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And you're like, wait a minute, preacher, you just said no, more, no defense. Why are we making a defense? A Course in Miracles talks about the right use of denial. And that's what this defense is. When we respond to an attack as a call for love, we are being gentle and reverent. We see the sanity of the other person. We see their innocence. We revere the holy within them. When we respond with gentleness and reverence, we deny the power of their error. We deny their belief in the insanity of the world. And we offer them the alternative of sanity by offering peace and love and joy. Will our love be rejected? Well, probably. I found a lot of folks who rejected anything I tried to do lovingly on those Yahoo message boards back in the day. But what will happen if we don't offer love when we hear a call for it? Just more division, more hatred, more insanity. Look at Facebook if you want an example. Dear God. Twitter. Ah. <laughs> this idea of defenselessness, though, it's very close to the ancient Hindu and Buddhist teaching known as ahimsa. It's often translated as nonviolence, but its more literal translation from the Sanskrit simply means an absence of injury. And this is the heart of dropping our defense. We no longer wish to inflict harm, not just on one another, but on ourselves as well. And since there's only one of us here anyway, we're all one in the mind of God, anything that harms others really does harm us too. We're just inflicting that pain on ourselves. So what happens when we step into defenselessness, according to our reading from a course today, is that we save more delay and needless misery than we could possibly imagine. That's because even though we may feel attacked in this world, if we respond with love, we are the ones who break that karmic chain of attack and suffering and counterattack. And that saves time because we have decided not to travel once again through that familiar territory of grievance and attack. We know where the road goes. We've been there a million times. 
But when we become defenseless, when we let the buck of suffering stop with us, we save time and we pay down our own karmic debt. What debt do you owe? I don't know. And Buddhist nun Pema Chodron says it doesn't even matter. All you need to know, she writes, is that the future is wide open and you are about to create it by what you do. You are either going to create more debt or you're going to get out of debt. So she says, you can start to pay off the cosmic credit card. So where are you right now, jubilance? Do you feel under attack? Do you feel like you've got to defend yourself against something in this world that's causing you to feel fearful or to be in psychic or spiritual or physical pain? Because this is your moment of choice. You can continue to create more debt by defending yourself or attacking someone else, or you can start to pay down that cosmic credit card. And we do that by what a course calls accepting the atonement for yourself. And nobody seems to know what that means, but I'm going to spell it out for you today. We have so many defenses that we try to use in the world, but they're always defenses that we can use to attack someone else. Most martial arts, punches and kicks, right? The atonement, according to a course, is the only form of defense that cannot be used to attack. It is the only way we can defend against the idea, the tiny mad idea, that we are separate from God and one another. In my book, again, I didn't know I was teaching the course 15 years ago, but this is it. This is the atonement. Accepting the atonement for yourself is like Aikido, the martial art of Aikido. Because what makes Aikido unique in the martial art community is that it only consists of defensive moves. You cannot attack anyone with Aikido. The idea of Aikido is to not be there when the attacker arrives. And you use their momentum. It's a bunch of hand movements and when someone comes, you just move them out of the way and you stay centered. Someone comes at you and you move them out of the way. Someone comes at you and you move them out of the way. And you stay in one spot. That's the atonement. It gently moves the ego aside when it tries to attack us. We make that defense not in anger, not in judgment, but with gentleness reverence. This is a positive use of defense because it forces us to see our attacker. It forces us, jubilance, to see our attacker as a holy child of God. Someone who is of inestimable worth. It also turns the tables on what we see as worth defending. That passage from 1 Peter, it tells us to be ready to defend the hope that is within us. That Greek word for hope. Here's your Greek lesson for the day. It is pronounced elpis. Let's say it. Elpis. E-L-P-I-S. That is the Greek word for hope. Elpis. And it means the expectation of the good. Note that we are not defending our grievances. 
We are not defending our penchant for wanting to be right. We are not defending anything the ego tells us are important. We're not, we're not even defending our bodies. We're only making a positive defense for our expectation of the good, which is the knowledge that we're all one, that we're all innocent, that we're all holy children of God. And this jubilance is our ultimate hope. This is the ultimate hope within us. This is what we defend by right use of denial. We deny the insanity we perceive and we see the truth all around us. That we are already whole. We are already innocent. We are already beloved. And when we can see this, then we can begin to live into our purpose of being that extension of love in the world, being the light of the world. All that we experience within us is compassion and love for those we are called to love. We hear that call for love everywhere once we put down our own defenses. And this jubilance is how we end the suffering of the world. This is how we pay down our cosmic karmic debt. I invite you this week to consider what it is you are defending. Are you defending your self-esteem? Are you defending your pride? Are you defending some egoic identity that you just made up in the first place? Or are you ready to live into your ultimate hope, your expectation of the good, and defend that by speaking words of love, by speaking words of peace, by experiencing the inner joy that's available to all of us, to being all of that for anyone who calls for love by lashing out in their own pain and fear and suffering. Jubilance, this is what it means to accept the atonement for yourself, to simply accept within yourself a more loving will and forgive yourself for any past unloving thoughts or actions. They're in the past. They're not happening now. From that moment, you can create a new future, one that is full of love one that is waiting for you to be the extension of God's love in the world. So I invite you to ponder your choice this week. Because you have a, you have a, it's an either-or decision here. You can create more karmic debt by going out there and defending that egoic part of yourself that wants to be right and feel safe and perceive itself as superior to others. Or you can save some time and pay down your karmic cosmic debt by accepting the atonement. That loving will that allows you to welcome the light of love to fill you and then shine forth into the world. There's only one choice, jubilance, that makes the whole world say, oh yeah. Breathe deeply. I want to tell you what the most powerful moment was when I realized, and I, and I only recently realized this. I mean, this has only been within the past few years that all of this has kind of fallen into place in my head. In a course, it tells it, it warns us to, 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 try, to not try to reconcile illusion and illusion. You can't reconcile two illusions. 
because there's two things that really don't exist. And I read a piece by um, Catholic uh, writer Richard Rohr, who I swear to God teaches the course. I mean, it, everything that man writes, I'm like, I, I, I see the course in there. But he was talking about um, our, our true self and our false self. And one of the things he had said was one of, the, one of the aspects of our false self is actually our sexual orientation and our gender. I mean, this is all made up anyway, right? And that threw me for a loop. I'm like, I have spent my entire life defending, you know, being a lesbian and it's okay and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, and it ain't even real. And it ain't even what, you know, I mean, it, it's, just a, it's just a thing we made up in this world, right? But at the same time, it's part of my curriculum. What is it, why is it in my dream? What is it, what is it for in my life? And it's not for me to go out and put my dukes up. It's for me to walk out into the world and be that love and be that as lovingly as I can. And so my homophobia is, of course, induced by the society and what society says about gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender people. And so that homophobia was there. But they're both an illusion. And so I spent all this time, wrote a whole book, trying to reconcile an illusion my, with an illusion. My illusion, which is my sexual orientation, with my spirituality, which is also an illusion. It ain't real either. Because I'm trying to reconcile it with a religion that we made up here on this plane. It's all an illusion. The course is an illusion. The course itself says, forget everything. Forget this book. Forget this course. It's not even real. But we have to have something in this world that we can relate to so we can wake up. And that's what all religions seek to do. Some of them go off the rails pretty spectacularly. But, <laughs> but they all try to start from that place. What are the tools that this religion can give you to help you wake up? And so the course itself, it's an illusion. Christianity is an illusion. Islam, I mean, it's all an illusion. Any, because it, right, well, right. There's no empirical evidence that we're even here. I mean, really, the scientists will tell you we're living in a hologram. Ain't none of it real. And so here I am trying to reconcile two illusions. No. Life is but a dream. Life is but a dream, absolutely. And so what I had to do was bring those illusions to the light of truth. And the truth is, I am a holy, beautiful, innocent child of God, and so are you. Every single one of you, because we are all the same. We are all one, having different and disparate experiences, because we all have different and disparate curriculums that we have to learn. What you're learning in your life is there to help you wake up, to awaken to who you truly are. That's the point of it all, is to, is to be woke in the best possible sense. And that is true, Camille. People are afraid to see who they truly are because we're afraid of God, because we're afraid that God will ask us to sacrifice something that we think we cannot do without. And God will never do that. Because as soon as our will, as we accept the atonement, that loving will, as soon as we do that, what we want turns upside down. It was Martin Luther that said, love God and do as you please, and nobody hears the first part. Because when you love God, what pleases you will change. 
What do you love this morning? Do you love God? Because if you love God, what pleases you? will just be love anyway. You'll want to just be loved. Thank you for joining us for Weekly Wisdom from Jubilee Circle. If you enjoyed the program, we hope that you'll support us by leaving a good review of this podcast wherever you download your shows. We also hope you'll support us in other ways, either by becoming a subscriber to our YouTube channel and our weekly newsletter, or by supporting us financially. You can find out how to do all of that by visiting our website at jubileecircle.com. Many thanks to Audio Coffee from Pixabay for supplying our podcast music. Join us again next week. And until then, take the words of Meister Eckhart with you. If the only prayer you ever say is thank you, that will be enough. We thank you for your time and wish you the kind of week that will leave you saying, oh yeah. Yeah.